The Weigelcast is part of the Hashtag Pressing Program, presented by GE. Welcome to Slate's interview podcast, The Weigelcast. I'm Slate senior political reporter Dave Weigel, and my guest this week is John Dean. Forty years ago, as the White House counsel in Richard Nixon's administration, Dean was privy to conversations about the Watergate cover-up. You know what happened next. Dean blew the whistle, testified before Congress, and warned that there was a cancer on the presidency. It was, for a while, his word against the president's. Then came the first release of White House recordings that proved Dean right and brought down Nixon. Dean's just finished a book, The Nixon Defense, based on a close reading of his experience, of those tapes, and of other primary sources. So he joined me to discuss what really happened. Well, thank you for being here with me. Pleasure. So, in the, in this book, pretty early on, you dispense with the 18-and-a-half-minute gap. And I, I'm bringing that up because it feels like that is an inevitable question whenever there is a book about Watergate. You say it's... Or by somebody in the media. Or by somebody in the media. <laughs> you say it's 99% news media hype. The rest of the percentile is maybe important. But the question is, uh, what would be... In, in that 18 and a half minute gap. Obviously, who did it is not terribly relevant. It's what's missing. And that's what's easy to figure out. Who did it is much more difficult to figure out. Uh, you can limit it down to a, to a handful who actually had access at the right times. But I was more interested in what he might have erased. And after listening to all these tapes, you know, I have a pretty good idea of his total universe of knowledge. And there's just nothing in there that is so earth-shaking, excepting for the fact of when the timing of this issue arises. It's after he sets his final defense where he says, I had no knowledge of anything about a cover-up until Dean told me on March 21st of 1973. So this gap occurs in June of 72, June 20th of 72. So it's very clear when they got the subpoena and they figured out this is the conversation they're really after, and I'm talking about the cover-up, that would be either he or somebody on his behalf realized this would sink his whole defense, as it would later happen with the smoking gun. And the smoking gun became a big deal, uh, and he's clearly involved in a cover-up, and that's just uh, three days later. Uh, Who did it? You know, I I don't think that's terribly relevant. You know, what difference will it make? It, it, It won't change history who did it. Uh, and I don't think it changes the history as to what's on there because we know everything he knew at this point. But can you describe how you researched the book? Because you're, you're talking about conversa- some conversations that you were privy to and transcripts of conversations, reconstruction of conversations that you researched. Just go through how you put this together and what makes this book unique and new. Yeah, what I started out to do is figure out how anybody as savvy as Nixon and politically shrewd and well aware of the way the system worked could screw his presidency up quite as badly as he did. Uh, that was my opening question. And I thought I could do it with the existing transcripts and tapes. I figured I'd have to record, a, you know, check a few more and have them transcribe it, not many. Well, that was wrong because as soon as I started looking, for example, how did he form the March 21 date as his, you know, his, his final defense, it kept going back, 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 and you had to go all the way back to the beginning. So that's, and I looked at, who had transcribed what. The Watergate prosecutor had done about 80 conversations. Uh, there were about 12 of them that were used in the trial that were very good because obviously Haldeman and Ehrlichman, who were defendants in that trial and had were privy to you know, many of the conversations and knew the players or were often being quoted, uh, they cleaned those up. 
the rest of the Watergate prosecutors, not so good. Uh, so you got the, I asked uh, one of the prosecutors who did these, and they said they were done by FBI secretaries. Sometimes they didn't have a clue who was even talking. Couldn't separate Ziegler from Haldeman, you know. So I had to do all those. And then I looked at Cutler's collection, which is excellent for what he did. But it's, it's again, it's highly selective, and his uh, ellipses often in the middle of a transcript can be 20 minutes of chatter, where some of it I found very important. So I decided I had to do all the cutlers. So that meant a thousand conversations I had to do. And I found the easiest way to do it was for me not to try to do originals. I did some of those, but rather take those who had done them already and and correct them. So I, then I got my my transcribers to uh, make first drafts, and I would listen to them and correct them because I could hear things they couldn't hear. How long did all that take? It took about four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, uh, I started in, in uh, 2009 and decided by 2010 I had to do them all. So uh, that's when I started hiring students, uh, and it was an evolving team. It's not, it's not pleasant work. Uh, because some of them are some, some of them are very good. Some of them are broadcast quality. Others uh, are not so good, and you have to play them over and over and over. Uh, everyone came to that same conclusion, and you just eventually you hear what they're saying. In fact, different days you have seem different senses as, as to what's being said, and so you can hear the next day something you didn't hear the day before. And all my transcribers experienced that. We'll get back to my interview with John Dean in a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. The Weigelcast is part of the Hashtag Pressing program presented by GE. Hashtag Pressing is working with some of the country's best news organizations to bring you thoughtful discussions of policy, not heated arguments about politics. I'd like to thank GE for making the program possible. And now back to my talk with John Dean. What did you discover in the research that was was new to you, that was left out of a previous transcript or something that you hadn't known Every page of this book has something I didn't know. That's yeah. the amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, what's big new? Well, things like the fact that Nixon only gets informed about Watergate for like the first eight, eight months after the arrest from Haldeman or Ehrlichman or the, or the Washington Post. Uh, I won't use the word that Bob Woodward uses to describe uh, important holy cow stories. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, there, there are a lot of those. I didn't know, for example, he's deeply involved in the subornation of, of perjury by Magruder, who's key to the cover-up initially. Uh, he worries about it. He authorizes it. He's clearly aware that money's being paid uh, to the defendants and says, well, that's what money's for, you know, to deal with these kinds of problems. So he's He's privy to so much more than I knew he was privy. He doesn't really become the driving force of the cover-up, though, until after March 21 when I went and lay it out to him. How did you, after doing all this research, how did you look back on the March 21st conversation? That's the March 21st, 1973. It was when the president asked, how much money do you, do you need? Well, he, actually, I provoked the meeting with yeah. him because I'm not sure how much he knows. And he does know much more than I, I knew and he let on. And I'm really doing it to warn him. Uh, he's pushing me to write a bogus report. He thinks that'll somehow magically make it go away if he has a dean report, as he calls it. And we had been around that circle many times trying to write something that would, you know, come close to doing anything. And everyone knew it was impossible to do, it's particularly if you did it anywhere, 
if you did it honestly. I mean, you could you could lie and it wouldn't lie and it would fall apart as quickly. So when he starts pushing for that, and I'm not about to lie for him. Uh, that, that's when I realize I got to lay it out for this guy and and tell him uh, that he's in serious problem. We're all we all have a problem. And I the reaction to the March 21st conversation was just not what I anticipated. I really think that's the first day I meet Richard Nixon and found out who he really was. He's sort of play acts with me a lot. Uh, you know, he he wants to show me, you know, how uh, he's not unlike other presidents and things like that. And uh, when I go in and lay that out to him, I had no idea until I did this program or this book uh, – and your program, of course, Dave. You bring out <laughs> secrets that no one knew. <laughs> but uh, uh, when I did this project, I, I didn't realize the March 21st conversation loomed as large for him uh, subsequently. And, that's, and then he forms his defense based on that conversation, uh, saying that he had known nothing before I told him about Watergate. And I knew that was fallacious. But it, what's I never I couldn't believe, for example, that he never listened to the March twenty first conversation. He listens to other of my conversations before then to make sure that he's they're close, but they don't really I don't get as as frank and as brutally candid. You know, you're obstruct we're obstructing justice, Mr. President. Uh, use terms like that. Uh, his note after that, his diary note after that, was interesting that night. He just thought I was being over emotional. Uh, <laughs> I, there was nothing. There are some. Uh, there's some real angst that comes out of my unconsciously, you know, in the conversation. I, I'm sitting damn near over a mic uh, in the office, and I have these <sighs> kind of expressions, you know, every now and then. And I know, I know exactly where that wasn't emotion. I'm just frustrated. I can't believe I'm laying out one horrible after another. I'm waiting for his fist to come down on the table and say, we've got to stop this. And he's just saying the opposite. Well, uh, you know, Mr. President, Bud Krogh may have committed perjury. Well, John, perjury is a tough rap to prove, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I said these guys are going to want more and more money. Well, how much do they want? And I pull out of thin air a million dollars, which would stay, what, about five and a half million. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking that'll stun him. Uh, and he says, that's no problem. I know where we can get a million dollars. Dave, these were not the answers I thought the President of the United States was going to give me. And so I pretty much realized also at that conversation I'd burned my bridge with him. I, I wasn't going to be a, the same use to him uh, that he had might have envisioned. You quote Nixon's diary later in the book, much later in the book, where he's recovering from pneumonia after the White House and speculates that he should have destroyed the tapes after April 30th, 1973. Uh, why then? I mean, was he referring to he should have destroyed everything after April 30th? No, or he, he should have... he, there are a couple conversations okay. about that. I, they're, they're in varying degrees in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the 18th of April, he also tells Haldeman, he said, you know, I think we should get rid of these. All, and, and they talk about it. And Haldeman says, well, you know, you might want to keep some of the national security stuff with Henry. And he says, oh, yeah, I think we should keep that. He's very worried that Kissinger would have his own version of history, and he'd not be able to prove his version of it. Uh, so he has second thoughts. What it looks to me happened, because Haldeman says, sure, I'll take care of it. And Haldeman was a sure, I did take care of things kind of guy. <clears throat> but what, what happens, I think, Haldeman gets consumed with Watergate himself and just never does it. And what's another thing that's very clear that happens is he gets Haldeman to agree that he'll handle the March 21st conversation. Nixon never listens to that, but he has a clear understanding of, of the 
most twisted and best account you could ever put of that, and that's the version that Haldeman gives to the Senate and gets he gets convicted for perjury on it, where Nixon says, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'm telling him about the fact there's payments being made, and he says, well, that would be wrong. Well, he doesn't say that. <laughs> he never did say that. And But Haldeman invents this phrase, and Haldeman knows by then it's dangerous to tape, and these meetings all take place in the Lincoln sitting room, which is an interesting place because the, only the phone there is, is uh, capturing voices, um, and they don't talk about it on the phone. So I think that's when they cracked the deal, and it uh, was a dangerous one for everybody. I was asking about... Nixon speculating if he should have got rid of the tapes because just in this book and then really in in research into the Kennedy years, the, the Johnson years, it seems that people who want to actually understand what happened have this great advantage and that they can access over time <laughs> the tapes that are taken. It's unbelievable. We'll never, but, have, we'll never have a record like this again. You know, Johnson's was controlled because it was only what he wanted to record and uh, same with Kennedy and they knew they were doing it. Uh, the voice-activated system with Nixon, it's clear at times he knows he's taping, but it's also clear in times he forgets totally he's doing it. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I was amazed that he doesn't inform Haig. Uh, Haig knows he's recorded me because he's instructing him and suggesting he listens to it. Haig thinks he's got a system where Nixon can turn it on and turn it off. He thinks anybody would be insane to not have that kind of control. Uh, but they just kept going until the very end, until Butterfield uh, revealed it, and that's when Haig orders to pull the plug. Well, I ask because do you think once Gerald Ford dismantles it, what, presidents have not taped every conversation in the White House since then. Are we actually missing something as, as informed citizens because presidents no longer tape the conversations they're having? I, I'm sure we are. I mean, uh, we like to think that uh, those are all high and mighty thoughts. You know, where is the Sixth Fleet today? And uh, how many drones are in operation? And what's our uh, uh, diplomatic problem here, there, and everywhere? But it, it, it gets pretty basic in those conversations in the Oval Office. And I, I, I suspect that happens with all presidents because uh, they're human. I mean, it's just uh, they, they don't change who they are as soon as they get that, uh, the mantle of that office. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, John Dean, thanks for talking to me today. Dave, nice to talk to you. Enjoy your program. That's it for this week's Wogglecast, and that's it for the first season of this show. We've done 22 episodes, which is about how long nature intends for a show to run. Let us know what you thought of this season, though, and any thoughts you might have about what we should change in a possible season two. Our address is wogglecast at slate.com. I'd like to thank all the people who made this season possible. Thank you to our producer, Alexis Dial, to Slate senior producer, Mike Polo, and to the executive producer of Slate's podcasts, Andy Bowers. If you like what you hear, please review us on iTunes, And please check out another one of Slate's podcasts. I'm Dave Weigel, and I'll talk to you later.